Welcome to the Real Time Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Christy L. And today we're going to be talking with a special guest. My special guest today is Brandon Hines. Brandon has been working in a teaching farm for nine years with a private company in Ontario, teaching kids gardening. And he is really excited about kid-friendly gardening and seeing nature and seeing how nature heals the earth. And so welcome, Brandon. Nice, to, nice to meet you today. And uh, I'm really excited about this conversation about permaculture. So tell us a bit of your story. How did you get started in permaculture? Hmm. Uh, from a very unlikely origin, um, I was in the business world for many, many years, um, and during that time, bought a home. And I was confronted with, well, many, many dandelions in my lawn, and some intuitive part of me didn't want to spray them. And so I was the, well, I was the crazy neighbor that was out there plucking them out every single night, eventually discovering that that was futile. And so... So I went online and I, I was looking up organic weed management and I stumbled on an article that really um, well, it grabbed me because I was asking the wrong question. I just assumed that weeds, or in this case dandelions, were a problem and they needed to be removed. And this article reframed the problem. The problems aren't the dandelions, it's something that nature in fact doesn't like and that's compact soil. And it went on to talk about nature using plants to fix problems. And in this case, dandelions um, and their long tap roots would naturally aerate lawns. And that intuitively made a lot of sense to me. So I began to see that really they're not the problem. It's maybe our lawns themselves might be the problems. And which again, just led me down this rabbit hole of questions. And um, yeah, I discovered this, uh, this site called permies.com and uh, they had a wonderful forum that I just spent so much time on uh, looking at uh, questions that were being asked and, and being answered in ways that were just not intuitive to me. And, and I just wanted to learn more. So when you started to discover permaculture from the Permies Forum, you did more research as well, right? You, you dove into books and there was a lot of self-study, is that right? I'm a bit of a nerd, yes. I have a very large library at home. And yes, I bought a lot of books. Um uh, one of the most influential books uh, I, I picked up early on was a book called Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway and uh, just packed with so much that um, I think I, I, well, if you saw my copy, it's very well read. And again, yeah, the, becoming aware of the fact that I was, I was just seeing the problems uh, in an incorrect way. The problems, actually, they weren't the problems. The, the way I was seeing and interacting with um, things were the problem. So it, it reframed your thought processes. It, it was truly one of those, yes, those life-shifting, aha, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. So you, you're you in a different house now than you were before. Are you using permaculture principles in your own garden? Uh, so we've... Uh, We've moved quite a few times over the years. Uh, our, our current house um, isn't uh, isn't a huge property. Uh, yes, we do we do grow some food, but we uh, we've been presented with some new challenges. Uh, we have a hundred year old um, walnut tree, which um, I was unaware of many of the limitations that uh, right. trying to grow near walnuts uh, posed. So uh, we have a, f- yeah, a bunch of raised beds. Um, um, like I said, we've only been there a couple of years now, so it's getting more familiar with what we can and can't do, the limitations of that space, but. Um, 
So yes. So a tip about the walnuts, there is a mushroom that actually eats the the jungland from the walnuts so that you can garden under walnut trees. It's called garden giant and Hmm. it actually, it's an edible mushroom. I know you don't care about mushrooms, you said, but it's an edible mushroom. Not entirely true. (laughs) Um, And it eats the jungland so that it remediates the soil under walnuts. Yeah, my daughter's growing it under her walnut tree. That is fascinating. That is the first time I've heard that, actually. So. Yeah, and, and of course, mushrooms are a really important part of permaculture. Big time. So, yeah, we, we're a mushroom family. You worked a lot with kids, and I would love to focus a little bit on um, how you introduce gardening to kids, especially kids that maybe aren't gardening at home. So, I am a very heady person. I love to talk, and I discovered quite quickly that... Um, Kids don't always appreciate that. So I had an opportunity um, to take a position at a teaching farm, and I felt very out of my wheelhouse. Uh, I I knew I had a lot of information to offer, but uh, I felt very inadequate in terms of how to connect that with, uh, yeah, in many cases, young children, Um, despite having children of my own. um, That was, yeah, not something I had a ton of experience with. However, I very quickly learned they are hardwired to learn. And I discovered very quickly, all my knowledge was wonderful, but uh, instead of channeling that into dialogue with them, uh, it became very apparent to me that they really connected with and do connect with space. And so um, the garden that we worked in was had a very intentional design to appeal to children's curiosities. It was very whimsy, um, and yet it was dynamic and yet very simplified at the same time. So, you know, for example, and this is, I think, something a lot of people have discovered um, when you are growing food to make it fun, we would, uh, we build a a pizza garden and it was actually shaped like a giant pizza. Uh, Oh, wow. And and in it, we would grow tomatoes and peppers and uh, oregano and onions and and all toppings that you would put on, you know, typically on a pizza. And then we would introduce some more advanced concepts with some of the flowers that we planted. We would plant um, marigolds, for example, and calendula. Now, aesthetically, they looked a lot like cheese. So when you step back and looked at the garden, it literally looked like a giant pizza. And yet they were there for more than just the aesthetics. Um, Calendula were a wonderful, beneficial insect attractor. Uh, we'd love the ladybugs. Uh, and so they, they would, uh, like many gardens, you know, aphids and flea beetles, they can be a little bit of a nuisance. And so you want to create that that diversity of, of um, like I said, those garden-friendly insects. And, and they would help do that. And of course, um, marigolds as well would help. I used to describe it to the kids, like it would create like a force field around the tomatoes and really hide their smell from, from um, you know, would-be insect threats. And so we're introducing, you know, the, the whole concept of companion planting and, and, and right. interaction between plants. And that was one example. So we were we were talking a little bit about the the idea of kids coming to the garden and being afraid hmm. and how you would cope with that. So, yeah, many, many of the kids that, that would come, it was a summer camp program um, with off-season programming as well. So we had kids all year round coming. But yeah, during the camp programs, many of them would come up from the city. And, and I was actually quite shocked how foreign just being outside for really the duration of the day was, you know, how foreign it was to many of them. And of course, if you're not interacting in 
natural spaces, the potential threats that exist there can be, uh, they can be pretty scary. And uh, like many kids, for example, are just, you know, they don't want to get stung, for example, and they're afraid of bees. Um, and one of the things that we try to introduce them to is, you know, this idea that you know, bees really aren't out to get you. They, uh, they've got jobs to do and they actually want to do their jobs. And in fact, when many of them, if they sting you, that's the end of their ability to do that. And they don't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, who am I going to sting? Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not their process. That's not what they're thinking. And so um, we convinced them of that and say, look, just watch me. And so I would get close to a plant and just teeming with, uh, with, with, with different bees. And I'd have my face right up in it and they'd be watching and like, whoa, they don't really mind you being there. And I said, no, they don't, because that's not their job to. They, they, they're, they're doing their thing. Um, and if you respect them, be calm and not wave your hands and certainly not don't make any contact with them. They'll, they'll just do their thing and let you let, let you watch them. And you get the uh, the odd kid that would brave kid that would take that initiative and they would put their face up and they'd look back at the group and like, yeah, hey, it's true. We can do this. And then of course more would join in. And next thing you knew, they were like, wow, these guys aren't out to get us. But then I would distinguish in our garden um, you know, the differences between bees and wasps. My experience, wasps have a tendency to be a little more aggressive. And so I'd ask them, so do you know the difference between bees and wasps? Like, well, what makes them similar? Well, many of them are yellow and black. Well, how do you tell them apart? Well, as a general rule, bees are fuzzy, wasps are shiny. So if you see the fuzzies, then they're, they're quite friendly. Um, if you see wasps, or, you see, or sorry, if you see the shiny, then you know, maybe you want to find a different place to play. Leave it up to them. And ironically, the garden was like the least threatening place in the entire camp. Uh, it was the place where the least amount of stingings ever happened. Uh, so, Did you teach them about plantain if they got stung? Uh, absolutely. Actually, sorry. Uh, I was taught that by my wonderful cohort that uh, uh, I worked with there uh, making yeah, that instant salve. <laughs> or, spit or poultice. Spit po- yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I always teach kids that. Yeah, my experience with wasps is that they generally won't sting unless you invade their nest. Like if you're mowing the lawn on top of in their ground wasps or something. Mm. This year I was hand pollinating some of my squash and I noticed that the wasps were inside pollinating, which mm. surprised me because I didn't expect them to be pollinators so much. But yeah, they were the whole summer there were wasps inside my flowers. I don't know if they were looking for other bugs to eat, but they were pollinating. Interesting. And we have another wasp by us, a black a black wasp. It's called a bald face hornet. Mm. And I've heard really bad stories, but in our experience, they actually take flies out of the air and eat them. So they, they get rid of some of the more negative insects. And the only time we've ever been stung is if we actually put our hand over them. Mm. And I yeah. think oftentimes, yeah, that there were inadvertent uh, interactions with them. And yeah. Yeah. So, so. Plantain, miracle. Yep. Yep, it's that, a miracle. Yep. Um, you talked to me a little bit before we started about something called edge effect, and I hadn't heard mm. about that before. Could you explain that? So in the world of permaculture, there are um, design principles that many have, have developed. Um, and depending on who you talk to, they, they vary somewhat. But uh, one of the most profound principles that I, um, that I love is this idea of the edge effect. And in, in ecology and in nature, it's basically when two systems interact. And there's oftentimes this amazing um, synergistic effect where 
you have more than the sum of the two systems interacting. You actually have almost a unique um, system that emerges where there is um, well, an exponential increase in biodiversity and activity. And one of the principles in, in permaculture design is to create edge, to create spaces where that synergistic interaction can, can take place. And so, I mean, there's practical ways of, of, of doing that from an ecological pers- perspective. But um, what really fascinated me with that was really the, 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 the I guess, the psychological uh, implications of that. And obviously, when you're working with a group of kids, you discover and, and meet all kinds of personality types, and all kinds of um, you know, insecurities and all kinds of challenges that they, you know, that they bring to the, to the group. And depending on the group, there's always some that feel they're on the fringe. They're, they're, um, they, don't fit in. they don't fit in, exactly. And uh, when I introduce this concept of edge to them, I present the idea that you know, stable systems are a good thing, obviously. Um, it's, they're safe. They're, they're necessary. But the real action, the real um, creativity doesn't happen in the center. It, it happens in those margins. Uh, and when you have you know, fringes or margins interacting with other fringes and margins, again, that's where that, that real newness of, of life emerges. And, and a lot of them resonate and connect with that. And, um, and again, that's, that's one of the, the whole ideas of, 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 per, of permaculture is to you know, observe nature and to draw you know, parallels and principles. And, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's much more than just design and, and growing food. I, I think there's um, huge implications about how we see other people and how we interact with other people and, and the world of ideas and philosophy. And so uh, then to take that and to you know, present that to kids, it, I'm, I'm, I was amazed how much they would resonate with, um, with, those, with those concepts. And, and again, the space itself was, was the teacher. They would see with their own eyes that, you know, it's not just words coming from my mouth. They were like, wow. Yeah. So we have something like that happening right now at our farm. My garden right now is, it's the fenced paddock where I used to have my goats. And so lots of fertility in there. We had goats there for about 15 years and then turned it into a garden space. And right at the edge where you're at the gate going into the garden, I've had this huge explosion of mushrooms. Wow. Now, you know, from permaculture, mushrooms are very important. They are part of the the soil culture and bacteria, really important. And now they're not edible mushrooms as far as I know. I haven't been able to identify them, but literally hundreds of mushrooms came up in the last week right at that edge and they're kind of working now one of Mm. this mushroom has been in my garden for a while what's interesting about it is i have this plot of what is it called um sunchokes sunchokes and i had some problems last year with mice going in and eating the sunchokes right from the underground everywhere that the mushroom mycelium was in the sunchoke bed they were the sunchokes were protected from the mice. The mice wouldn't cross into that area. So it's very interesting. So as of this year, the space where that mycelium is has pretty much tripled over last year. And mm. uh, so everywhere I can still grow, the plants still, they grow great, but the mice aren't crossing the barrier. So it's like what you said about edge. Interesting. I, I'm, I'd be very curious to know what uh, what was actually happening to, to, to cause that it, it has a really strong mushroom scent hmm. 
Mm. Like I like I said, I don't know if they're edible mushrooms, but they smell very strongly. And they're giant mushrooms. They, When they're mature, they're like the size of a dinner plate. Really? But they start out um, like a small parasol, parasol. So I'm not sure what kind of mushrooms they are. We're not harvesting them for food. Um, and the mice aren't going into the mycelium, which is really interesting to me because I have had a lot of problems with mice eating my potatoes, eating my carrots. Mm and eating my garlic even. So it's it's nice to have something in the garden that kind of repels them. Interesting. Interesting. So it's that edge effect you were talking about. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. If growing some of your own food sounds like something you're ready to do right now, I've got the perfect next step for you. My Fill Your Salad Bowl workshop is a concise workshop that will show you how to grow enough greens to fill a salad bowl every day. That's a great first step, just to fill a salad bowl. It's not overwhelming and anyone can do it. You can do it even if you don't have any land, even if there's three feet of snow covering your garden, even if you've killed houseplants in the past, and even if you don't think you have a green thumb. Here's what we cover in this workshop. Now remember, it's a concise workshop. It's not gonna take a long time to go through, so everyone's going to have enough time to do this. You'll learn three different salad green growing methods that you can implement right away. You'll learn the exact methods I use to keep my salad bowl full so I never run out, even if I have unexpected company. You'll also learn where to cut costs and still be successful growing salad greens at home. You'll learn the ideal equipment to use if you want to grow greens faster and easier. The unique pitfalls to avoid with indoor and container growing. You'll learn how to save a crop that goes wrong, where to find organic seed at reasonable prices, how to store your seed so it stays viable for years so that you can save money now on bulk seed purchases. And you'll learn the health benefits of sprouts, microgreens, and healthy greens and how to optimize these benefits in the way you grow them and the way you store them. We'll also give you 17 ideas for using homegrown salad greens in the kitchen so they never get mundane. If you're ready to start growing some of your own food and you think salad greens are a great place to start like I do, check the link in the show notes. In permaculture, it's very much encouraged to observe the space that you're working with to right. to understand the ebbs and flows, the the dynamics, and and not seeing it in a static way either. You know, recognizing that over time it will evolve, and that uh, all systems evolve. And right, but it's also encouraged to take small, intensive steps at the beginning. Basically, keep it simple. There is that temptation to just make it happen quickly, but again, there's some things you just simply can't force nature. Nature's on its own timeline. You you know you can't you can't rush a harvest. You can't fake a harvest. There's there's a season and there's a, a timeline that unfolds. So I'd I'd like to back up a bit. We were talking about apple cultivars and mm. um, apples are really unique because mm. every single apple has to be cross pollinated. So every single apple seed has a potential of a brand new tree that's never existed before. And I love that about nature. Um, and I've been encouraging people to plant apple seeds from their apples. Yes. If they have space or even if they don't have space, go find a vacant lot, go find a hedgerow and plant the seeds. Don't throw them away. And when I was growing up, we were told, don't bother planting your apple seeds because you never get an apple. And that's just not true. 
we we were lied to growing up hmm. and every single apple tree i mean that's how all of the apple trees that we have now or apples that we have now in the store yep. existed it's because somebody planted a seed from an apple and it grew into an ambrosia or a honey crisp or a red delicious or a macintosh and i think that hmm. that's so amazing and we've we've really lost it um, because because of the lies we've been told about fruit and not just apples, but like peaches, every peach will reproduce the tree it came from. Hmm. Like it's because they're, they're pollinated while the flower is still closed. And so that's amazing too. Like you can take, if you have the right climate, you can take a peach pit, uh, crack it open so that you have the, the little nut inside and plant it and you will get a peach tree. Very similar to the, the tree that it came from. I mean, obviously one of the big detriments to commercialized food. I guess on that note, similarly, um, for kids to discover, for example, that not all tomatoes are red. <laughs> that, right. um, and, I, and this is what I love to encourage that you, I mean, you can't see me because we're not on camera now, but it, it becomes very clear that I love to eat. I love to cook. Uh, I love fresh. I love different. Um, and to encourage, uh, you know, children to uh, explore foods that they don't see in the grocery store. I mean, right. there's a little bit of apprehension at first, but then they're like, wow, this is awesome. And like chocolate covered or colored tomatoes. It's like, what? Right. Um, like, this is crazy. Purple, orange, all these beautiful colors, rainbow carrots. Um, and, and they have flavor. And, and, and exactly. Like, exactly. Like purple fruit, purple potatoes, purple, mm. purple, anything tastes like blueberries. Yep. There's even purple rice has this undercurrent of like a blueberry flavor. It's amazing. Uh, one of the activities that we did weekly were um, food activities by harvesting what's in season in the garden and to do rainbow potato pancakes was mind boggling, but there's no artificial coloring here. These are. Yeah. Different fleshes. And we we used wonderful to colors. love lavender colored mashed potatoes. Mm, yeah. Like really good. Um, and people miss out because they don't have access to that food if they don't grow it themselves. And and yes, that is that is the bottom line. You want awesome food. You've got to grow it yourself. Well, you, yeah, you suggested that there are lies that we've been told, but. Um, misinformation. Misinformation. There you go. Misinformation. And, and, and I mean, look, we have to take responsibility. We live busy lives and we. Uh, obviously value other things, but when you discover that uh, you can grow your own food and you can not just grow anything, but grow like awesome, different, yeah. um, it's, it, it becomes very addictive. Um, to go shopping in your backyard for you know, the meal that you're going to prepare tonight is, it's quite an experience and to have your kids come out there with you and have them choose, uh, you know, do you want this herb? Do you want this spice tonight? And do you want this uh, vegetable? Sure. It's very a, fun. It is. Very it's, fun. And, and, and kids love that. Yeah. And, and also it doesn't take that long. There's, there's a wide variety of vegetables that you can grow in 30 days or 45 days. You don't have to wait for, you know, 120 days before you see a harvest. So um, our family, uh, one of our staple meals is a salad bar, quite literally. Um, we provide uh, all kinds of different possible toppings and um, a lot of them will harvest uh, right of our garden and yeah they they, they do they, and they connect with that and it's like yeah I help grow that that's so. great that's mm -hmm. great
earlier years, um, I had this mom come up to me. She had a presence about her, and and I saw her coming up to the garden after camp one day, and real stern look, she looked at me and said, are you Brandon? I'm like, maybe. (laughs) Yes, yes, I'm Brandon. She goes, you're the gardener here, right? Maybe. (laughs) Yes, I am the gardener here. She's like, uh, after a minute of apprehension, she looked at me and a big smile came on her face, and she's like, I just want to thank you. I'm like, okay, um, thank me for what? She's like, my son um, loves gardening and has just loves loves this garden so much that he um, insisted that we build our own garden. We're not gardeners. We don't grow food, but he was adamant that um, that we do this. I'm like, well, that's awesome. That's really neat to hear. I said, just out of curiosity, who, who's your son? And she said his name, and I'm like, hmm, I can only think of one kid with that name. I was like, it can't be him, though, because he hates gardening. He's, every time he's here, he's wants to be somewhere else. And it's like, this is not his thing. And I'm like, so your son, it's this young lad that I'm thinking of, right? He's part of this program and he's this color hair. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah that's him. I'm like, really? Like, that's your son. And, and she's like, yes. And I'm like, I, I'm blown away. I'm shocked. Uh, and I don't shock very easily. And uh, yeah, that was a bit of a lesson for me too, uh, not taking for granted um, and assuming things on, on, on these kids. And, and, and on the surface, yes, he was full of energy and he was, mind was all over the place, but uh, he was connecting with that space in a way that, that I had no idea. But you and couldn't read him. I, I certainly couldn't. I certainly couldn't. And yeah, that, um, that had a profound impact on me uh, wow. for sure. Um, and again, going back to the idea that it, it isn't, Certainly as an educator, it really isn't really nothing to do with you. It, it, it's about helping the kids explore that space uh, and uh, obviously providing them with that space for them to explore is, is where I think uh, your efforts and your focus should be. Right. So when you had the pizza garden, did they actually make pizza from the garden? Occasionally we would actually do pizzas, yes. Um, uh, unfortunately, one of the projects we never got around to was, was doing a cob pizza oven. That was, uh, that was definitely on the wish list, but never, uh, never came to fruition. But uh, we, did have a, we did have a little farmhouse uh, kitchen that uh, we would often do um, stuff like that. Yeah, we, every week it was something different. And, but yeah, uh, again, when you see their faces and the, the pride that I helped grow this, and, and every evening after camp was over, um, so many of the kids would bring their, their parents back to the garden and um, they would take them on, on the tour and, and show their parents, this is this, this is, you know, this is our pizza garden. This is our sensory bed and look at this plant. You can eat this flower. And it was just so amazing. Yeah. To see that. Life changing. Uh, it, it really, it absolutely is. And which is sad on the one hand to think that there, that this is something, I mean, this was commonplace even when I was a kid, like we lived outside uh, and to see how foreign that is now is, um, alarming actually but but it's hopeful too because it's something they can even if they don't go back to it now because of what's happening they will eventually go back it will be a drawing card you know it's like the garden of eden there was always that draw to get back there hmm. yeah the you know the metaphor of planting a seed and it's funny when when going back to the beginning of this conversation we were um when i came across that lawn management article there was definitely seeds that were planted there that that almost took a decade to to actually come to fruition uh, in in me. But um, but yeah, once they were planted, um, it, they uh, they eventually did take root. And and when I look at kids too, yes, I don't look at the immediate response. Um, I think you're right. I'd, I'd be curious to talk to them ten, fifteen years later and and 
see, you know, what their engagement is with, uh, with food, with gardening, with, um, with nature. And, and once they have the, the means to have a garden of their own, mm-hmm. things can change. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So what would you suggest if there was a family that wanted to start a backyard garden for their kids to get their kids involved in nature more um, away from their phone? Maybe what would you suggest would be a good first step? If it's a, a family affair, I personally love sensory plants. Um, and depending on the age of, of children, um, if you have young children, there's an array of wonderful plants that they're just staples that, that, that kids connect with. Like uh, what? Lamb's ear. Um, lamb's ear, I, I'm, every children's garden has to have. They're soft, they're fuzzy. Um, and I, I would always joke, many of the kids would come to camp sad, they're, you know, the parent separation, anxiety and whatnot. And, you know, I asked them, you know, does anyone have stuffies at home. Of course, they all put their hands up. I said, does any of you miss your stuffies right now? You know, half their hands would go up. It's like, well, I can't provide your stuffies, but I can provide a pretty good substitute. I'm like, come on over here, check this plant out. And I would pick a couple of lamb's ear and I'd stick them under my hat and they'd all start laughing because they literally do look like lamb's ears. And um, uh, I was like, well, if you, you know, if you get sad, you can come over to this plant at any time. And you know what, you can pick one of these leaves and, and I'll let you keep it. And of course they'd all dive in and pick one and some of them would, you know, squeeze them and hug them. Some of them would rub them against their face. And it just, yeah, it provided that, that soft sense of comfort. Um, another wonderful plant um, for many reasons, uh, anise hyssop. Mm. How many of you like candy? Of course, all the hands would go up. I said, one of my taglines is like how awesome nature is and how it literally provides everything. I said, you guys like candy? We've got some growing right here in the garden. What? Come check this out. So we'd, we'd go over to the anise hyssop plants. And I was like, Licorice. Yeah, you know, you, you see there's little tiny little, little flower petals? You know, you can pick one of those and, and put them in your mouth and eat them. And they're like, are you nuts? And go, well, watch me. Pick one, put it in. I'm like, oh, this is so good. You got to try it. So, of course, they'd all dive in and start picking the flowers. And I'm like, oh, my, that's amazing. And, yeah, it, it once they experience that, it's like, okay, what else you got to show me? <laughs> right. So, uh, so yeah, um, lamb's ear, um, anise hyssop, two wonderful, wonderful plants. But, Going back to your question, you know, for a family just starting, like it's, it's, start simple. Gardening can be daunting. There's, yes, there's, I mean, you could spend a lifetime learning and still know very little, frankly. Um, But start simple. Even if it's just a pot with a single plant, start with that. Put it right by your back door. Um, I don't know if you like chives or uh, if you like lavender or if you like lemongrass or lemon, oh, lemon balm is another, another great one for kids. Mm you know, just grow some, let them, let them interact with it. Um, and then maybe next year add another plant or maybe two or three more plants and then go from there and see how much interest there is. And if once, once you get hooked, it'll take off and uh, you'll, you'll start fueling that desire to learn and you know, maybe put a garden bed in. Um, you know, we, uh, we built this first thing we did when we bought um, our most recent houses, we put in a sandbox for our kids and surrounding it were um, sensory plants and, my youngest two were the first summer we couldn't pull them out of there. So nice, nice. I, I like that your suggestions were herbs because a lot of times people, when they want to start with a kid's garden, they'll start with radishes or carrots and, Mm. and they take time. And once you harvest it, they're gone. 
or some people even will start with watermelon and then mm. it's not always successful. So then the first plant didn't produce any food and the kid has failure right off the bat. Exactly. That's not a great way to start. 100%. But your yep. sensory plant ideas are really good and then you can use them for tea or yep. you can use them as something to add to a salad. So yep. there's an ongoing thing. So your first trial is actually a success. Yep. And then 100%. you can build from there. That's a great idea. Well, thank you very much, Brandon. Is there anything else you want to add before we close? One thing I just uh, repeatedly would say to the kids that, that you know, nature really truly is awesome. And you know, when you look up the meaning of that word, it captures both you know, beauty and, and, and wonder, but it also captures you know, fear and trepidation and, and it, it's, it's everything. It's the entire spectrum. And it truly is that. It's something to marvel, but it's something that we can learn so much from. But we have to take the time to step out of our digital worlds, our, right. our busyness, and, yes. and just be in that place. When I sit under a, a tree on a windy day and I hear the wind blowing through the trees and I'm just sitting there quietly, I'm. it's like I'm transported to many previous situations where I was under trees and I would recall in a very visceral way like what I felt the the, the sounds the smells who I was with uh, where I was and I, I would cycle through all these memories and it was amazing how uh, even to this day like how it, that is triggered just by the sound of of uh, wind blowing through through leaves and mm. um, I mean that was something I had experienced and I'm sure other people have different connections it's um, like a spiritual experience in a way, yeah. I mean, it was nothing profound in in, in, in that sense, but it was like a, an attunement and a connection. And um, yeah, it, it, it's really a wonderful thing to experience. So yeah, just get out in nature. Mm, thanks for sharing that. Mm. So today we've been talking to Brandon Hines about permaculture and how to get kids involved in gardening. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us today and pleasure. sharing your stories. So... Today's positive action is to plant something that will engage your kids, a sensory plant like we suggested lamb's ear or anise hyssop or lemon balm or any of those very fragrant plants with lots of fuzz that your kids will enjoy that you can then use for tea um, and salad ingredients. So thank you for listening, and as always, please share, like, subscribe, and if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with your friends. Bye-bye.